0: Welcome to The Guide Sessions, a podcast where we talk about stories of adventure as told by the guides who experience it. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your support. If you like what you hear feel free to rate and subscribe. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about tags and applications. Most states' applications uh, have already kind of opened and closed, there's some that are still open. Uh, however, if you happen to not draw a tag, there's still options out there, okay? You can contact me at the Guy Sessions Consultant. You can come through the website, theguidesessions.com, Or you can look me right up on Instagram at The Guide Sessions. Uh, Shoot me a message. Be like, hey, I'm looking to do a hunt somewhere, and I'll help you figure it out. I've got some outfitters that I'm working with in different states, even Africa, even some up in Canada. So I'm pretty sure I can find you a place to hunt. uh, Even with overcounter elk, you know, a, a cow tag, I can get you hooked up with an outfitter if you want to go get some elk meat. All right. There's opportunities out there if you don't if you don't get a tag. Go get experience. Go get reps. If you've never hunted elk, there's nothing wrong with hunting a cow because you're in the elk woods so that actually when you finally get that opportunity to draw that bull tag of wherever you're drawing or wherever you're applying, you're going to have experience and reps in the elk woods. You're going to see how they act. You're going to see how they move. You're going to be in that environment that they're in. So you're going to learn how to prepare yourself for that moment that maybe be perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime tag that you've been waiting 15-20 years for. So if you've never been on a trip or something like that, there's opportunities there, so reach out, contact me, I'd love to help you out. Also, don't forget about the Guide Sessions Media Services where we offer a wide variety of photography and videography services. So you could be an outfitter looking for pictures and photos, Um, videos for your website or even a small business and you're trying to improve website and improve content, things for social media, reach out. I'd love to help you. Again, you can go to the website at theguidesessions.com or look me up on Instagram at theguidesessions. Hey, guys. As you're probably aware, most of my life evolves around the outdoors, whether it be guiding hunts or filming content or just hunting and fishing for myself. For a while now, I have actually struggled with my weight. I was hauling around about 40 plus pounds that I didn't need, and it was really starting to become a burden to me physically, both in the woods as well in the gym. If you have been following me on social media, you will have noticed that I have actually found a nutrition program that has not only perfectly fit my hectic schedule of not only my daily job, but all the work I do outside of that in the hunting industry. It also has got me healthy, got that weight off, and it did it really quickly. I'm really excited about it and would love to share more information with you, but I don't want to delay this podcast any further. So if you'd like to learn more, shoot me a message or an email. What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning into this episode. Hope everyone's summer is off to a great start. My girls have finished another year of school, which means they are one more year closer to graduating, So, which is hard to believe because At this point in life, I'm telling parents of young children to enjoy them while you can because time does fly. It's just amazing how fast time passes and there's really nothing you can do about it. But uh, anyway, before I start crying about this whole stuff, um, bear season. Bear season is alive and well. It's going strong. However, I know some of the forest fires up there in Canada are definitely affecting some of the outfitters as the fires and the smoke are kind of pushing grizzlies into some of the black bear areas where they're typically not, which is making it really tough for people to hunt the black bear simply because grizzlies and black bears, ah, they don't get along. So hopefully that fire gets under control sooner than later. And um, it's just one of those examples about how some outfitters out there have to deal and kind of manage and control all those things that are outside of their control, and you really don't have to worry about what you can control because uh, it's not like you're going to stand there and you're going to fight that fire to, f- to defend off your baits and keep the grizzlies off. So uh, best of luck for them. Hopefully things uh, work out for everybody and everybody still has somewhat of a successful season in the end of it. But um, speaking of grizzly bears, in this episode we are heading to the great state of Alaska where we're talking with Tyler Kuhn of A-Team Outfitting. Tyler is another Pennsylvania-born dude, just like me, uh, with the dream of becoming a hunting guide. Uh, he kind of had a rough start and kind of put him in an uh, actually a homeless shelter, uh, but he didn't give up. He continued through, and through some determination, he eventually found an outfitter that supported his dream and helped him through the process, taught him the ropes. And after about 10 years chasing numerous species up there across the tundra, Tyler has started his own outfitting company. Uh, He has taken every bad experience that he has faced and he has developed a method to not allow the same experiences happen to someone else. So in this episode, we discuss getting screwed by employers, having to hitchhike out of the Arctic, uh, fully committing, going 100% full tilt to a dream despite being homeless, what you can learn from your clients in the field, What it's like to stare a charging grizzly in the eyes. Gear that survives the season, because Alaska's its own animal up there. Uh, Embracing the suck like you have to with most guides in most hunting situations. And so much more. This is a raw and real conversation. It's Tyler Kuhn, talking with me on the Guide Sessions Podcast. All right, we are live, and today on the show, we've got Tyler Kuhn with A-Team Outfitting from way up in the great state of Alaska. Tyler has been living the guide life for 10 years and focuses guide efforts on grizzlies, brown bears, and moose. Tyler, welcome to the show.
1: Honor to be here.
0: Yeah, so don't know much about you. I know we had a brief conversation that, where we met down there at the Harrisburg show. And um, it seems like you had a good show going for you, booking a lot of stuff. But uh, just give me a rundown about kind of where you're from, how you landed in in Alaska, and how you started the the guide business. Really, what made you jump into that that pool?
1: Yeah, so my journey of all of this kind of started out as a little kid. So I grew up in the, the eastern United States in Pennsylvania. Grew up about an hour north of Pittsburgh. Grew up hunting, fishing, trapping uh, in the farmlands there and in, in the Allegheny Mountains. Since I was seven, had this dream of you know moving to Alaska one day and becoming a mountain man, you know, and living off the land. That was like my like my childhood ideology of what Alaska was. You know, I I grew up uh, reading a lot of the fur fish game magazines uh, and loved hearing all those wilderness adventure stories that were coming out of Alaska on occasion and. Uh, the thing that really set me off big time was I was watching a National Geographic presentation with my grandmother, probably about the age of seven, eight, uh, I was what I would guess. And it was on the Western Arctic caribou herd migration in Northern Alaska. And I remember telling my grandma vividly, I was like, grandma, I'm going to move to Alaska one day. And at the time, everybody kind of laughed at it, you know, like, you know, this is. The area I'm from in Pennsylvania, kind of a very downtrodden, old steel mill town. Not many people leave, you know, mm-hmm. very poverty stricken. So a big dreams like that from an area where I'm from, kind of people just kind of scoff at it and say, yeah, whatever, you know. But uh, when I started getting towards the age of like 13, 14, really started looking into, okay, when I graduate high school in a few years, what do I want to do? Do I still want to go to Alaska? And if I go to Alaska, what am I going to pursue Always had in the back of my mind uh, about the guide industry up here. Researched it a little bit over the years throughout childhood. And then around 13, 14, I really started inquiring the guide association up here in Alaska, talking to fish and game and trying to figure out kind of the stepping stone process of it all. So, and then once I graduated high school, I was up in Alaska within two weeks after graduating. Wow.
0: Yeah, you were. <laughs> you jumped right into it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting uh when I came up here. Uh the the biggest thing I can tell people that I screwed up and I wish I would have known more of is there's a lot of opportunistic outfitters up here when it comes to people wanting to become assistant guides and getting in the industry so you start off as a packer i like to term it as an apprentice guide because you you can have your apprentice guides which are the guy uh, packers who are trying to become assistant guides and go on that two-year pipeline for that and then you have your just your dedicated packers who are essentially like sherpas who come into camp haul gear haul meat that hides that sort of thing so what a lot of these outfits i shouldn't say a lot of them but some of them they take advantage of young guys like myself and at 17 being from the east coast never stepping foot in alaska i didn't know what i was getting myself into so won't mention any names got on board with this guy up in the brooks range did some uh some packing for him right there going into september long story short guy screwed me ended up having to hitchhike out of the arctic Ended up down in Fairbanks and ended up living in a homeless shelter in Fairbanks. Lived in the Fairbanks City Rescue Mission for a while. Graduated to the Fairbanks Youth Advocate Shelter. They call it the DOOR. Lived there for a bit at the youth shelter. And then as I uh, just slowly started going through everything, uh, I ended up having a guy who was a packer at that camp up in the Arctic Ended up getting a hold of me. Went, helped him build a cabin, run a trap line that winter. Me and him kind of had a little bit of a falling out. He was pretty new in Alaska, too, and made a lot of mistakes and was kind of unsafe. Ended up back in Pennsylvania for a little while and ended up uh, running into a bunch of mutual friends of this guy from back in PA. His name was Scott Hoover. Kind of a uh, kind of a local legend there. He hunted all over United States, Canada. Guided pretty much everything. Killed everything there was. And he was from my home general area and he had moved up to alaska several years prior and had apprenticed under master alaskan guide jim bailey who's one of the most famous bear guides in history up here and he learned the ropes to uh jim and then we me and scott just happened to have those mutual contacts and they contacted out to scott and said hey man we got this young kid he's he has a lot of aspirations kind of wanting to go up there to alaska and do what you do uh can you give him some advice at the very least so then I ended up getting uh, his number. We had a three, four month long interview process and he kind of liked what he was hearing. He quizzed me on a lot of stuff, kept asking me the same questions over and over again over those few months just to see if I would just keep the answers straight and not lie to him. And I did. And then one day he gave me a number to his boss that he was working for at the time. And then I came back up to Alaska and started my apprenticeship under Scott.
0: That's crazy. I mean... To go right from high school, I mean, kudos to just jumping in with both feet and going and going after it and chasing your dream. But what was it like when you were living in a homeless shelter? Like, were you still like, because you that perseverance you had? Most people that I would think of is that you know when they hitchhike out of there, then they're just going to travel all the way back home. They're not going to fight it out and stay. You know, let alone in a homeless shelter. Like, were you chasing your dream that hard that it just didn't matter where you were living?
1: I was driven to become a guide. I've maintained that philosophy, you know, throughout all these years of doing this. But at the time, you know, I just looked at it as, you know, this is horrible, but it's an obstacle I got to get over and get through to get to where I want to be. Going through all that, I just kind of kept that drive and the determination just to get through it no matter what, Uh, you know, I maintain that mentality all the way to this day. all the time to everybody about the importance of when you're a guide especially up here in Alaska you got to keep your head straight and you got to push yourself yourself through adversities no matter what and that's the focus that got me through you know homelessness and got me to where I'm at today.
0: Yeah I mean that's that's definitely something you don't see a lot anymore but I guess when you got a dream that you're going to do whatever it takes to get there and what did it feel like when you did you feel like you like you give up or you failed when you actually moved back to PA before you had the opportunity with uh, what was it Scott?
1: Yeah, so I mean it was it was definitely a letdown. I did not want to go back to Pennsylvania in that Newcastle area where I'm from. Uh, you know, you got you receive a lot of negativity, you know, and a lot of I told you so's when you come back into a situation like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I made a pretty quick turnaround. I think I spent, if I remember correctly, I think I spent that the rest of that winter in Pennsylvania and then turned around that spring and then came up uh for bear season that following spring. So it was probably only about a five month window, but yeah, uh a lot of people thought I was crazy yet again for turning around and heading right back up into the into what they perceived was gonna be the torture all over again, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's funny because you're not the first person I've talked to up in Alaska where they kinda where there's a select amount of, I'm just going to say the select amount of outfitters out there that, that take advantage of people from back East or may not know and just really screw them whether they don't pay them or they don't treat them well and just give them like the worthwhile, you know, the most worthless experience that they can give anybody. And I don't i don't know what it is up there, but like I'm pretty sure there's some elsewheres in the States. I know there's a couple people in Colorado have had similar stories, but it just seems like Alaska is like flooded with that. I don't know what it is about up there, about just people just wanting to use people.
1: Yeah. I think it's an easy opportunity for people to use people, especially young guys, uh, you know, that come up that just want to do this so bad. They can't even see straight. And they're not really paying attention to the red flags that these, these, uh, these businesses are giving them, or they don't even know the red flags to begin with because Alaska is so convoluted and, and law and regulation up here in the guide industry so if you don't literally essentially contact almost an attorney i like to say beforehand you don't even know the ins and outs of this industry so you're you only know what the outfitter that you're going to work for tells you and if they tell you a whole line of nonsense that's going to be your truth coming up here and you're going to believe that because oh you're going to think to yourself oh here's this guy he's giving me an opportunity like when i applied i applied for like 27 different outfits trying to get on as a packer Mm -hmm. most of them were either fully staffed or weren't interested in me since i had no experience and that one guy that reached out you know so as i was already batting a zero going into this and i had 26 no's or no replies and then the 27th guy's like oh yeah let's go i i uh i need i can use you you know we have some room here and then next thing you know i was like oh okay finally somebody giving me an opportunity and i just jumped on it not really thinking you know what i mean like and that's what found me into that 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 bad opportunity
0: yeah, I mean, but sometimes you almost have to take that chance, especially if you were over yep. for 26. Yeah, it's one of those things, or even though you're young, you might not know, but even if you may have been a little more educated, knowing what you know now, would you have kept going for, like, another 28, 29 opportunities? Or?
1: Yeah, knowing what I know now, just based off what he had kind of told me and the lack of what he had told me, <laughs> I would have definitely – said like okay this guy is just full of himself right now like he's gonna take advantage of me since i get up there like when you have a guy who really just long story short the guy just really wasn't big on explaining to me in great detail what i'd be doing how i would be doing it and things like that like that's a huge red flag because they're not going to tell you that you're going to go out on hunts and do all this and get all this knowledge Typically, if they don't want you to be what most of these outfits want you to do is just go up, sit in base camp, do chores, and then when a moose dies, they send you out with a a tarp and a mountain house, and you go and you pack meat, get soaking wet, miserable, and then they fly you back, and then as soon as you're done, they'll fly you back to town after they close down their base camp, and you may or may not even get a paycheck. You know, and some of these guys are coming up even in a worse scenario. I was coming up under the pretense I was gonna get paid. A lot of these guys come up here and they the outfitter tells oh, I'm not gonna pay you, but this is you're gonna get paid in an experience and you're gonna work towards getting that assistant guide license and become a guide in two years. Well then the problem is is again, not knowing the legal side of things you know they're not putting you on our hunt records you know that show that you were even in camp you know there's no paper trail there's no w-2s 1099s anything like that so you don't even exist a lot of them don't even have you get a a hunting license so they're just like sending you out in the field and at the end of the season when it comes time to pay you or like say okay you logged this much experience they just push you away and and essentially I've, I've had guys tell me that you know the outfit just loses contact with them. They never even hear from them again, and then they try to pursue it. Well, then they have no legal documentation that they even were there. So then it's their word against the outfitter, and the outfitter is like, "I don't even know who this guy is. He's not on any my paperwork. You know he's lying." And wow. based off the paperwork, it doesn't. You don't exist. So that's the big thing with my company, and that was one of the things I. I swore that I would be completely different on once I started A Team outfitting. So all of my guys are on work contracts. Everybody makes I show everybody that they're on the hunt record. Their their name is put on the hunt record before the hunt even starts. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork. Everybody has, you know, tax documents. I mean when you work for me, it's it's legally impossible for me to screw you. You know, then that's the biggest thing is I want everybody on the same page.
0: That's insane that like people would actually I don't know. I, maybe I'm just too honest, honest of a person, and it seems like you are too. Like it's like I just I have a hard time. Even now I'm I'm having trouble finding words to describe like how messed up it is that that there's people actually that would do that would that would completely take advantage of somebody that you just busted your your ass, and all of a sudden they're not even going to acknowledge the fact that you even exist. Mm-hmm. Oh
1: man, that's. Yep. I've experienced a little bit of that myself in the very beginning. You know, the biggest thing is I, I i tell anybody going into this that you're going to get screwed in the beginning and you just got to kind of roll with the punches, not get overly frustrated and just go with it. And there's even in the best case scenarios, there's going to be stuff that, that throughout your training process is going to happen that you might just not like. I mean, when you're a packer, you're an apprentice guide. You were doing the worst of the worst jobs possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to be working 20 hour days, seven days a week, and the pay is going to be very lousy. And the days are going to be long and the work is going to be hard. And, you know, you just, those that's the stuff you just have to roll with. All of us go through it. I went through it, Uh, but you got to balance that out with, am I actually being taken advantage of here versus, you know, it's just this part of the protocol. Mm -hmm. And, you know you know you're getting taken advantage of when the promises start becoming you know lies now there's certain things that are out of the controls of an outfitter like the outfitter might intend something you know is going to happen in regards to your training program and then just things happen up here in alaska where that might not be the case but you know if the outfitter's straightforward with you about that and as that plan changes and you know about it then you know Obviously that's a guy who's trying to give you you know you know a good path to follow, but a lot of these guys, like I said you're the I, I I heard it best by the guy who screwed me. He said he looked me in the eyes one day where at the very end he's like he's like you're nothing but a packer you're the first to go and the last to know about everything that was the la- one of the last things he he told me before pretty much kicking me out the door without a paycheck and I hitchhiked out of the Arctic
0: Wow. So how'd you hitchhike? Did you like hop on a snowmobile?
1: <laughs> oh um, no! Dog? I just started walking down. <laughs> yeah, I started hiking. I just started walking the Dalton Highway with a ninety-pound rucksack on, and a uh, a nurse from Anchorage. She was like, uh, I can't remember what they call those nurses, but they she like travels all over. Uh, just travel traveling nurse. nurse. Yeah. Yeah. And then she ended up doing some sort of Northern Lights, you know, Aurora Borealis tour up there in the Brooks and. She's just cruising down the road in her little Ford, I think it was a little Ford Taurus or something like that. And I, I flagged her down, and it was the craziest thing. She made an agreement with me because she was super tired. Mind you guys, no clue who I am. Here's this, like, dude right. with a beard dirty hasn't showered in you know like two weeks walking down the road and she throws me in the car and she says you it, i'll i'll give you a ride back to fairbanks as long as you drive because i'm really tired and i didn't sleep good last night because i was watching the northern lights uh, so here's some strange dude driving her car while she's sleeping in the passenger seat and i drove all the way back down to fairbanks
0: wow man yeah. sometimes that's what it takes that's crazy though man yep. good for you for sticking it out and, and going out there man that's Man, I'm, I'm just still I'm still taken back by like how people can just take advantage of other people like that they, they just they're just not good human beings uh, I just don't know how to say it um yeah. but yeah kudos to you actually because that probably helps you out enable in terms of you with hiring guides and packards and things like that because you know how bad it could have been or how bad you were treated so like you're saying like you will never screw somebody over the same way that you're doing everything yeah. 100% legit paperwork backed up and everything.
1: Yeah, one of my biggest problems with owning a business is, is always trying my very, very best to be as straightforward with people as possible and, and and do what I can for everybody, you know, whether they're working for me, their clients or whatever. You know, things happen, you know, when you're running a business. And, you know, if I've ever been in a situation where I think I, you know, may have, you know, done somebody dirty in some type of way, you know, I want them to be vocal about it. So that way we can, you know, work that out, you know, because I don't want to be one of those names that, you know, I had when I was very first starting out. I mean, that put a really bad taste in my mouth and that was like a big driving force for me to start my own business.
0: Yeah. for I mean, I can understand 100% about how that would definitely mold and shape you. You especially being young, you can mold and shape you to learn from that and then therefore apply it for once you did start your business. I mean, it's yep. like it, it may not give you the, the, the like example mold to follow, but it was almost gave you like the example mold not to follow.
1: Yeah. And I find that's more important, honestly. Uh, you know, I find when somebody shows you the mistakes not to make, and then you don't have to make those mistakes, that's just going to propel you so much faster because you could be, you know, right out of the gate, really good at what you do and making good choices. Well, eventually you're not going to make good choices. You're going to screw up. Everybody screws up, you know, especially when you come from a background like me. Like I have no, you know, prior history of business acumen. I have no family that owns businesses or anything. So I just learned as I went with everything. But a lot of this stuff I was able to learn from watching other people, you know, and between outfitters making you know, horrible mistakes and screwing people to just listening and absorbing the information that clients were giving me, you know, a lot of my clients are, you know, business gurus. So just soaking up everything, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly along the way, that's kind of really helped me out, get to where I am, you know, when I'm in the field, 260, 280 days a year, some years, you know, that's, you're learning a lot in that time.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think you you hit a nail on the head there is kind of talking to your clients, because a lot of times, the the people that go on these some of these big outfitted hunts the cost i mean they're they're business owners they're ceos they know business so as you're sitting there for days at a time weeks at a time with these is like why not kind of bend their ear on some things and actually kind of learn about how they run their business and tell them how you're running it and how you can improve on it i'm pretty pretty sure most people would be like sure yeah let's let's figure out how we can do this better
1: i don't think i've had a single client in pretty much the 10 years you know I've been doing this that hasn't just started giving me free business advice. I mean the amount of college uh, credits and business and finance <laughs> that I've received for free over the years has been insane. Like, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And you know, I've, I've had a lot of these guys help me along the way. And whenever I have questions, you know, I have guys that I hunted with five years ago that I'll just shoot them a text message, shoot them an email and ask them a question about something. And they're within a day, they're right back to me, you know, mm-hmm. because you know, when you get that good report, the client's, I always say this, like you mentioned earlier about how it's like an above average problem for Alaska where outfitters kind of screw around employees, screw around clients, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That is such a prevalent thing up here where I got a guy, for example, who he's hunted with me, I think seven times and we're already planning his eighth trip. Wow. He, the first two times he went to Alaska were completely, he was completely bamboozled both times. And the second time, the dude literally got just left in the field. They had no food or anything. And they were pretty much catching salmon uh, that they could find. Like, it was at the end of the the fall uh, bear season. Mm-hmm. And whatever, like, spawned out pretty much dead practically laying on the bank salmon they could find that's what they had to eat because the outfitter didn't even give them enough food for the 10-day trip he gave them like six days worth of food for a 10-day trip you know i always say when you're on a trip for a 10-day trip you should have 13 14 days of food with you on a 10-day trip Mm -hmm. he said my my buddy uh said yeah he's like at best they had six days and they were scavenging for food and it was just a horrible ordeal and the guy just laughed it off like nothing was even a problem so a lot of these guys just take people's money and run with it you know you by the time you're said and done for these moose hunts and everything anymore you're 30 35 somewhat 40 grand invested and sometimes you're just taken for a dog and pony show and that's about it
0: yeah yeah that's so unfortunate so unfortunate so you kind of mentioned about how everybody screws up and you learn from people's mistakes. So what are some of the things, other than what we've already covered, what are some of the things that you've kind of had a mistake or you've learned from?
1: Yeah, the uh, the biggest thing that I learned really quickly is just making sure that when you're talking to clients, every single thing to the detail that you tell them, you do to the best of your Your ability. A lot of these guys are super, super high performance people and they have a very, very strict itinerary for their day every single day. Now, when you come up to Alaska, I tell everybody one of the very first conversations we had before I even get any, I probably get a penny out of anybody. I tell them, when you come to Alaska, I'm your guide. Alaska is my guide. You can't control so much of the stuff that. Here. But you gotta, you have to be the guy that controls their controllables. So, for example, if you tell them on this moose hunt, you're going into a camp and you're gonna have a 10 by 10 arctic oven tent. Uh, you're gonna have a cot. You're gonna have X, Y, and Z. Do everything that you can to implement every single detail that you told them on your controllable list that you mentioned to them. That's one of the things, especially if your hunt. Starts going south. Let's say you have a bad, you know, you have a lot of bad weather, you're not seeing animals, uh, you know, you're not seeing legal animals, things like that. The hunter's mind starts going south, especially when they start getting tired, hungry, wet, cold, they're miserable. They're going to start nitpicking things. Not Mm -hmm. all of them, but some of them. Yeah. And you want to have your controllable set up to where you have pretty much crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's so they can't look at you and say, you know, out of frustration and anger say hey you promised me x y and z and i didn't get any of that what is up with that and then they start looking for those little things to come at you with so that's one of the best pieces of advice i've learned you know over the years it's like even something like me i'm such a minimalist and things just don't bother me on hunts mm-hmm. but it could be something as you tell the guy oh yeah you're gonna have a full-size cot in your tent and then he gets there and he doesn't have a cot well he just has a sleeping pad well, that is something that can compound later, and that's what I've learned.
0: Yeah, I can definitely foresee. I mean, that's almost human nature in a way in some people. like Once you're miserable, and like, especially if you're not seeing animals, and because you're there to hunt and to see things, it, that if you're not seeing animals and, like you say, you're cold, you're wet, you're tired, it's almost human nature for most people just to start finding ways to
1: complain. Yeah, they try to find – people try to find – the scapegoat for why things are happening the way they are Mm -hmm. and in alaska it's pretty apparent pretty quickly that alaska has a great deal of indifference for every single aspect of every single day that you're up here this i tell clients all the time as we're walking we'll walk by a, a caribou skeleton or something i'll say you see that over there and i'll point to the skeleton i was like see alaska doesn't care about anything out here this caribou is biologically, ecologically adapted to this environment and it's just laying there dead right now. Alaska doesn't care about us and our problems whatsoever and that's something that I beat into their heads constantly like if you're going to be successful on a hunt up here, you have to keep a never give up mentality from start to finish and if you keep that mentality those are typically the people that have not only just enjoyable hunts but successful hunts when they actually harvest their animal
0: Yeah, good point I mean, I've never been to Alaska. I want to get there one day, but I think that right there is the piece of information I'm going to take with me is, is to never give up in that situation, because it, that that's yeah. A lot. I like I said, I've never been there, but from what people tell me, Alaska is its own animal, and it will eat yep. you alive if you if you if you're not sharp and sharp mind and paying attention to everything that you're doing.
1: Yeah, if you go up here in what I call the big four Alaska, Northwest Territories, Yukon and British Columbia, especially northern BC there too, but uh that it, it's just you're in that this region of the world, it's the tip of the spear of hunting. I mean, it doesn't get any more hardcore than uh, you know, where we're at up here and what the type of hunts that we do on these big you know, hunting expeditions. I don't call them hunting trips. I call them hunting expeditions because that's what it is. I mean, you're 10, 14, you know, days into a trip and all your life-saving gear and equipment on your back the entire way pack, pack, backpacking through the uh, the wilderness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, your life is in your own hands.
1: 100% of the time, 24-7. Yeah.
0: So how to like... So with that being such a huge adjustment from Pennsylvania, now granted I'm sitting in Pennsylvania here too. So what was the biggest thing for you to make that adjustment from coming to PA where it's kind of in a way from the sense of Alaska, it's very luxurious down here to changing that your life's in, in your hand at every moment of every day?
1: Uh, I'll say it like this. Essentially like my uh, my mentor Scott always told everybody and it's kind of a a cliche statement anymore a lot of companies are using it now but he always used to say it to us he's like you just embrace the suck and after a while you know you just you just start you know developing this hardened mindset on things what helped me along the way is you know coming from Pennsylvania I was the furthest thing left of being an athlete or being physically fit or anything I mean I came up here I was like I think I was 125 hundred and twenty five, pound kid with glasses when I came up here you know and immediately straight out of the gate, I'm having to do physical stuff, you know, and a a certain degree of athletic uh, athletics that I've never ever had been able to accomplish before. And Mm -hmm. slowly as you start doing these things, you start gaining a huge level of confidence in yourself. Because you go from this mindset of like, oh I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. And then you force yourself to do it. You force through the pain and the suffering nonstop day in and day out. And then you achieve the goal and you're like wow. I achieved it. Like I did what I thought I wasn't even possible. What else can I do? What if I can get to this next level? And that started propelling me further and further. And then I, within the years, you know, I started doing ultra marathons, running, you know, 100 mile races, you know, I, wow. 200 pound rucksacks, <laughs> you know, packing moose four miles one way, you know, 200 pounds of meat, you know, with a quarter and a bunch of loose meat, you know, tied up the, 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 uh, the uh, packs, so over encumbered that you get the ratchet strap on extra meat to the outside of the pack because all your Packers that were with you quit on you. And then you you're by yourself out there packing a moose. You know, like it's just the stuff you have to have the mentality or you're not going to make it. I mean, we had guys before. I, I've seen so many Packers, especially Packers. And this is why you do the apprenticeship program up here, because most people don't make it through the first year. They might make it through their spring season. They get into the fall, fall shuts them down. Between the bad weather and the, and the heavy packs, they're done. I've seen guys literally hold guns on themselves and threaten that if we don't fly them out, they're going to shoot themselves. I've seen it. I've seen complete mental deterioration to the point of uh, threatening to commit suicide. And that's the mentality that you have to have. Like You have to stay focused and strong every single day. When it, you, you'll you get to a point where you're so miserable and you're laying there and you're in your uh, you're sleeping bag at night. I don't know when I was a Packer. We all have our own little little pup tents, our little one man tube tents. And I would sit there and we'd have like our tents around each other in kind of a formation. And I would listen to dudes, full grown dudes. Everybody was like older than me. At the time, and everybody's just like crying in their tents at night because they're so sore, they're soaking wet, they're uncomfortable, they're hungry. You know, they they missed their girlfriend, they missed their wife, they missed their kids. You have not the slightest semblance of creature comfort whatsoever. Everything just compounds, and that was just in day. You know, life every single day. But like, you know, that's the long winded answer is to get through coming from Pennsylvania to Alaska was just you know, doing hard things and achieving hard goals. And it just, it changed me as a human being forever.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of things. I think all guides go through that in a sense, but it's probably, I think to the nth degree come to Alaska because everything's about doing things hard and and overcoming hard obstacles because there's nothing easy about being a guide, whether you're, you know, packing out an elk or packing out a moose, it all takes that, like, that mental strain, that mental strength that like only comes with repetition of putting yourself in a bad situation and knowing that you're going to come out on top. It's just going to suck while you're there.
1: Yeah, and the hardest thing about that is when you get to a point, especially up here, it's like this a lot. Even as a guide, you think it all the time in the back of your mind. You know, like, can I actually do this? You know, like some of these obstacles that we have to overcome seem so ridiculous that it's just like, there's just no way, like, there's just no way I can, I can get this moose out by myself that we just shot in this swamp. And, you know, you bring a couple packers in and next thing you know, your packers start dropping off and they quit on you and. It's like, okay, now I got to get this bull moose down that, you know, we just shot a 67-inch wide bull, you know, thing has 150, 160-pound hindquarters, and I got to pack it uphill two and a half, three miles through swamp, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, and if you don't do it, now you have a wanton waste violation that in the guide industry is a Class C felony. So right. it's like, you know, there is no ancestor or <laughs> butts, so not only you're not wanting to waste this moose because it's – you know, you don't want to waste that meat, but now you have the legal side of it too. And it's like, you have to be able to perform. And again, that's why we have the apprenticeship program, because you want to weed out all the people who are not going to make it. If you just gave everybody a guide license up here, wanted a guide license, people would be dry- dying every single day up here. I guarantee you. Uh,
0: I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't doubt it at all. It's funny. As we're talking about this, it kind of reminds you just this past weekend, I took my, my daughter down to Maryland to, to hunt turkeys didn't get anything didn't even hear any but then that was on Saturday and where we were hunting you couldn't hunt in Maryland on Sundays but you can hunt in New York on Sunday so as we're driving back up like Sunday or Saturday afternoon I was like you want to hunt New York tomorrow and she's like how do you do it I was like what do you mean she's like how do you just go and just not stop and I'm like because I've done it for so many times that I know I can just grind it out. I said, it's, and I pointed in my head and I said, it's more here, up here than anything. I said, "Yep." your body will follow. You just got to listen to your brain and overcome it. And she's just like, you know, she's 12. She doesn't understand that stuff. But like, you know, it's just funny how like, even I just thought it was kind of funny, comical that that a 12 year old could see that when in me about like, wow, you can just drive yourself and just do things that most people can't because you just you know, that's what you want to do and that's what you want to achieve so therefore you're just going to focus and do it and and no rest no sleep no nothing just grind it and i was like yeah yep. that's what we, it's what it's, it's part of the life
1: 100 percent. and you know as long as you can keep that mindset even when you know even when you want to quit and you want to be done more than anything just pushing yourself so there's a lot of times you know when you're just in that tent, in your sleeping bag, you get that two to three hours of sleep that night. And as soon as that your alarm wakes up, or you see that sun cracking through, you know the tent, and you got to think to yourself, "I'm gonna have to crawl out of this sleeping bag, put on my soaking wet clothes and my half frozen boots, and you know, do it all over again—a whole another long, you know, 14 to you know, 18 hour day. And yeah. you know, it's just and you gotta all love over. it too.
0: That's the other thing is you gotta love it.
1: Yep, hundred percent. If I didn't love it, I would have a hundred percent quit a long, long time ago. And 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 now I'm at a point too where it's like you try. You get to a point where, as you start aging through this, you know, and the years tick on and tick on. You know, I haven't gotten fully to this point yet, but I can see I'm already heading in the direction. Is you got to find a balance between the guide lifestyle and the home lifestyle because. To do it at the capacity that I'm doing it, it's not feasible forever, especially if you ever want to have kids or, you know, have a really committed relationship, anything like that, because you live in the – I mean, I spend way more time a year living in a tent and a sleeping bag on on the side of a mountain than I do ever, you know, on a – I mean, it's just – it's crazy. I mean, I – when I come home after the end of the season and I am at the end of the fall and I I jump in my own bed – That bed just feels like you're floating on a cloud, man. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's, and that's just part of the life about just loving it and living it. And I don't know too many people that, that do it as much as you do. I mean, like 260 days a year. I mean, that's like, that's a lot. That's two thirds. You know, I, I haven't even done the math, but like it's, you know, over two thirds of the year, basically.
1: Yep. Man.
0: So I guess kind of real quickly, I guess I'm going to now talk about surviving out there, like gear wise, like what, like, how do you stay dry? Because it's always wet up there. It's snow when it's raining. Like, how do you stay dry? How do you stay warm? How do you mitigate, you know, from hiking up a mountain when you're dripping in sweat to trying to, and then at that point you got to sit there in glass, but all your clothes are soaked from either rain or sweat. Like, how do you mitigate that?
1: Yeah, so I uh, let's. I'm going to use for example just a general mountain hunt. Let's say you're dull sheep or mountain goat hunting, even moose hunting's like this because there's so much precipitation in late September. By day three, day four, statistically, most of your gear is soaking wet. I mean, you can wring it out and fill up an eight ounce glass of of water just from your shirt. I mean, it's crazy how much just you're soaked to the bone. We have a lot of saying up here in Alaska that cotton kills. So, step one is you don't want cotton anything of any of your clothing because what happens is when that cotton-based clothing gets soaking wet, it starts pulling heat from your body. So you're you're already miserable, cold and wet, and now the cotton is gonna make that even worse and you know deduce your heat, your body's heat output even faster. And then. The biggest thing I tell everybody that for mitigation is is you got to realize going into it is you're going to be wet and uncomfortable to begin with, but you got to do the things necessary to keep yourself alive. Uh, mind you, uh, water takes heat away from your body 25 times faster than air does. So you got to have technical based clothing that's going to you know help maintain your body's core temperature even when wet. The biggest thing that I use for technical gear is I'm I'm a big merino wool fan. All my base layers are merino, tops and bottoms. I also have merino wool gloves, merino wool beanie, merino wool socks, and that's the main thing. And then some of your outer your outer layers, like your top and your like your main hunting top and then your hunting pants. I'm big on mountaineering equipment. I don't really run the Kuyu, the Sitka, you know, the, the Cryptek, anything like that. That's all great. That's great product, but I've gotten more into the mountain hardware, the Kuehl, the Arcraics, stuff like that, the stuff the mountaineers use, because that stuff dries so fast. Like, I've soaked my pants before, and I've literally rang them out, tied some paracord to both legs, the cuffs of each leg, where your ankle would be, and then tie another line to a belt loop and like stretch it out really far between some willow branches or a couple trees and you got you get a little bit of sun or like a, a brisk you know breeze blowing through i've had those pants dry in 10 minutes wow i mean they don't hold moisture at all and you can dry them out quick so now you're going from a soaking wet pair of pants that's pulling heat from your body wring them out and dry them in 10-15 minutes you know while you're eating lunch or something and then boom! Now, now you're back to a dry pair of pants that's not pulling heat from your body. So it's the things like that. And I always, here's a big survival tip. And this is a long story that you know I I really won't get into. I actually have, I'll let you know when the article comes out because I'm actually writing a furfish game article story on this right now. This this cool. story of the sheep hunt. But a few years ago, I was on a dull sheep hunt, and a few days and everything. So coming back with the last load of meat with a packer getting back into camp and having nothing dry to wear I mean feet swollen to the point where it took me 20 minutes to get my boots off because I couldn't fit my feet out of my boots at that point wow uh, got them off had nothing to wear and then got in my tent finally had to use the the meaty pads in my hands in my palms to z- un- the unzip and then zip the tent because my fingers didn't work anymore and then literally had to crawl naked into my sleeping bag and pretty much roll up in a ball and probably took me two hours to get warm after that and you know finally fell asleep and woke up the next day and was able to eat something so the biggest thing i tell everybody now is uh, you want to have a layering system from your merino wool socks your merino wool base bottom your merino wool top pair of gloves and a beanie you want to leave that in your sleeping bag in your tent at all times. And you never ever want to take that out unless a absolute emergency dictates you to do it. I don't care if I got to wear the same soaking wet pair of clothes for seven days straight while I'm hunting. As long as I know, when I come back to that tent at night, I have one dry pair of clothing that's in the bottom of that sleeping bag that I can strip all the wet clothes off, put all the new dry layers on and actually sleep warm and safe in my sleeping bag. That is the biggest thing that I tell everybody is, is if you get in a life and death hypothermic situation where you're having a hard time, just naturally keeping your body's core temperature up. When you get back to that sleeping bag, if you make it back, that article, those articles of clothing can actually save your life. And that's, I was on the cusp of an actual really bad emergency that night. Mm -hmm. And I did not have anything dry to wear.
0: Yeah. It definitely sounds like, so like, that's a great tip to put their stuff in your sleeping bag to keep it warm. Now, would you advise people to put a, a second backup pair, like in their pack, and carry it with them at all times, so, like swap out shirts and pants and things like that? Or
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have extras, but the problem is up here, you got to be really careful about how quickly you expend your clothing. Like, for me as a guide, especially, because I spend so many days back to back to back to back without drying clothes like adequately in a washer and dryer mm-hmm. so I, I gotta space out how i'm using my clothes you know, like on a hunt if i if i'm going out hunting for a month let's say i bring four pairs of pants and four tops well some months it's pretty dry or you might not have very much precipitate or very little precipitation but then you have warm spells with some sun in between where you can like dry your stuff out i've had some septembers where Your clothes are soaking wet in like no time. You know, you got a month of September to hunt. And if you're out in the field uh, for that entire duration, you might not have the ability to really dry out the clothes. So four pairs of pants and four tops spread across the month. I mean, that's you're really, really stretching yourself thin there. And then the problem becomes weight, especially for the airplanes. Like I would love to be able to fly my entire hunting clothing wardrobe out on a hunt and just have a a, a nice dry cloth. Clean pair of pants and underwear to put on every single day, but it's just it's just not feasible overall because you got to fly all that stuff in. Usually in a Piper Super Cub, where you have enough room for a pilot, one passenger, and sixty pounds of gear in the tail, and that's it.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean it's yeah you know, layers upon layers clothes clothes are weight for sure. So no doubt. So then, what do you recommend your so for hunters? You recommend them to have to bring like a set to wear and then a set to that you leave back in the sleeping bag, basically.
1: Yeah. I always tell people have two sets of hunting clothes and then you don't got to get super tech. Like you got, you got to have technical clothing, but you don't got to have like a big bulky layering system for in the sleeping bag, you know, a good tight fitting pair of base layers, gloves, socks, and a hat. That's what between that, those Merino wool bases that you have in the bag that you're wearing mixed with the natural, you know, insulation of your sleeping bag and i always put a gore-tex waterproof liner over my sleeping bag as well that's gonna that'll literally save your life i mean if you have that you're going to be having that's perfect core regulation right there mm-hmm. and you're nice and dry the entire time
0: yeah and and actually your uh your idea and advice of trying to use mountaineering gear versus like your qus and your Sitka's, I actually i didn't he- think about that even hear about it until i was uh I was reading an article about Donnie Vincent, and that's what he does. Because he's like, yep. he's like, you know, you, you're just looking at mountaineering gear is almost almost like slightly better than than your average hunting gear. And animals only see grayscale anyway, so it doesn't matter.
1: Yep. Oh, the the mountaineering gear they figured out what the hunting industry, what companies like QU and Sitcar, just now figuring out. They figured that out forty. 40- Years ago, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so the hunting companies are just now starting to get into the ultra light, but yet technical clothing lines, which, like I said, you know, a company like Mountain Hardware that's been around for a while, you know, they've been doing that. And it's been on, like, kind of a, unless you're in that mountaineering, backpacking, long distance, you know, trail hiking scene, you don't know about it. And I started learning about this stuff from those guys. You know, up here in Alaska, we have a lot of mountain climbing, like, you know, people climb every year and everything so we're kind of around that realm and you start talking to those guides that operate in that capacity and they're teaching me all this stuff and i they i I remember the day i bought my very first pair of like cure mountain hardware pants that's I don't even wear jeans or anything anymore. They're so comfortable and naturally fitting to your body. Like I don't need, I I've gotten rid of all my blue jeans. Even when I'm in town, I wear them. Like literally, that's all I wear now. I mean, they're amazing, amazing products for both at home and in the field. And I, I'll take the I'll take that gear anywhere on planet Earth.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's dive in some hunting and yep. talk hunting stuff like that. So you are you mainly just focused on moose, bear, or do you kind of do like caribou, goats? What what like? What do you like doing?
1: I do everything up here in Alaska. The only thing in Alaska that I haven't guided for yet is Roosevelt elk, muskox, and plains bison. Those are the only animals up here that I haven't killed with a client yet. Mm-hmm. My my bread and butters bear, I do Kodiak brown bear, Alaskan brown bear, grizzly bear, and black bear primarily. My second addiction has quickly became mountain goat as well. I'm obsessed with mountain goat. I do a lot of caribou hunts in the in the uh, early fall. I'm actually taking over a buddy's caribou hunting operation. is the plan next year, and then I I used to guide a lot of moose hunts uh, I've kind of got out of the guiding side of moose, uh, hunting and I do more the outfitting side. So I have assistant guides that work for me that love hunting and chasing moose. I got so tired of packing moose meat over the years. I've killed so many of them big bastards. And I'm just like, I don't, I tell everybody, like, I don't even have much of a drive to shoot a moose for myself at this point. You know, the one year working bouncing around from late August through late September, I killed eight moose in one season once. And I tell you what, I, I, I think I was hunched over two and a half months after that it was bad man but yeah bear and mountain goat those that's that's my like that's like my drug addiction
0: yeah so it's funny that i want to talk i want to touch on your bears but just kind of touch on moose real fast is uh, it's funny because a lot of people i talk to from Alaska who guide moose they're like yeah i don't want to i don't want to pack them out anymore Or like no i'm never packing those things out i don't even hunt moose and uh yeah <laughs> It's amazing on how big they are. Now, granted, I said I've never been to Alaska, never hunted Alaska, but like it's to me, it's like a bucket list hunt for me. It is is an Alaskan moose? But like, I'm always like, man, to pack that sucker out, is, is, talk about the mental grind. You know, it's gonna be, it's gonna be tough. Like, I, instead of like 200 pound quarters, I might be taking a hacksaw and cutting it in half and doing more trips with less weight.
1: Well and here's the problem with that in parts of Alaska, is there's parts of Alaska where until you you get back uh, pretty much to your base camp, your lodge, in the town to the processor. Some units, hunting units in Alaska, you by law have to leave the quarters intact, the meat actually on the bone, including the ribs. And that's a law up here in some units. Oh like I have a unit I have one unit that I hunt where we're allowed to debone, and I have another unit where we're allowed to debone. We are not allowed in one and allowed in another. So, but I always leave it on the bone anyway because a lot of times, I always say it like this, especially with the quarters. There's two reasons we leave it on the bone, no matter what. One, the obvious thing is you're, if you don't have as much surface area on the meat, you're slowing down uh bacteria's ability to break down and decompose that meat if you start like you could even do an experiment with this if you wanted. like if you let's say a uh like you know steak or something you start cutting slits into the steak that steak will actually rot out faster than a steak that hasn't been sliced into because the bacteria hasn't been able to get deep into the deeper tissues of the steak what happens is when meat sits out the air uh starts forming. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you've seen a bunch on like the crust that you get on the, on the outside of a quarter. Mm-hmm. That crust is a natural like protection, like layer that forms. So when you start hacking away at quarters and just start ripping off tens of pounds of meat at a time, now you have all this loose meat that has a lot of surface area that can rot again, wasting meat in Alaska, especially in the guide capacity. I mean, that's a, that's a felony charge. So you got to worry about that at all times. So, that's one of the reasons we keep meat on. Second is the first thing you do when you're you down a moose is you get all the heavy loads out first. If it's you and a buddy, you and your buddy, you're taking hind quarters first, front quarters next. And then you're breaking it up uh, with, between ribs and loose meat, brisket, backstrap tenderloin, stuff like that. The only thing, too, by law, is you're not allowed to take the antlers or the horns or the hide, which is considered trophy value, you're not allowed to take that out until all the edible meat has been harvested off the animal and safely exfilled from the field, or you can, on the last load of edible meat, you can bring back the trophy value as long as the trophy value is exfilled, either after or during the same trip as the meat leaving the field. So those are those are your two main reasons. Like I said, just keeping that meat intact because mm-hmm. you're getting if you have that quarter, getting it from A to Z, all that meat out while it's 150-pound quarter, is way faster in the long run than taking breaking it down in two, three trips. And your body's going to break down so fast, like, way quicker than you think. Like, you're going to be so tired, and your muscle fatigue's going to keep setting in, and you'll just get to a point where you're going to have a hell of a time, you know, packing all those loads. If you, if you pack a moose by yourself without deboning, it's nine trips to get one moose out. Wow. Yeah,
0: wow, nine. Yeah. Big animals for sure. So, mm-hmm. so your bears, yeah. what's kind of like your technique, what's your strategy throughout the throughout the season for the bears, whether you're hunting grizzlies or browns or, or blacks?
1: all oh, depends on the unit and the time of the year. So in spring, you know, they're coming out of dens. The boars are chasing sows. Uh, it's kind of their breeding season uh, going on at that time. Most of Alaska is that May to June time frame. Kodiak, it's a little bit earlier. And the late end of uh, April, but that time of the year, we're kind of hunting up high. A lot of times, hunting in the snow, you know, trying to intercept those boars that are that are traveling a lot in their rut, looking for females. So a lot of glassing, a lot of just sitting and looking. You know, bear spring bear season. Uh, you'll you'll hunt yourself to death in the spring. Uh, there's days, you know, the days are long up here in Alaska at this time of the year. You, know, you down especially down south uh on like the peninsula or like Kodiak going into May I mean I think we're getting like probably 18 hours or something like that of probably a visible light to where you can just hunt 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 and hunt and with the snow and the twilight that you get I mean you can even see a little bit even past that I mean it's crazy the amount of visibil visibility that you have to see so long days lots of glassing in the spring the fall can be different uh you know, the fall, the bears are fattening up, getting ready to go into hibernation. Some places in this state, I'm hunting the blueberry patches up high. You know, they, uh, a lot of the bears, when they're up high on the blueberry, they're leaving like the timber or the salmon stream areas, heading up high, getting into the alpine, eating berries. And then they typically go, once they're done eating berries right before winter, they go up another level and into kind of a high country, like scree, uh, shell type country and where you typically even see like mountain goat and sheep and that's where they start digging out their dens typically. So that time of the year we're hunting them on berries. Some of the areas in the state have a huntable, uh, Bear population during the salmon run especially the peak salmon run so some of those areas will actually hunt the bears on the salmon streams and creeks and rivers and that's a very up close and personal hunt most of those hunts you're engaging bears at less than 100 yards so uh you know that's a really interesting you know hunt as well some people also do the bait stuff in spring like we're getting more and more baiting opportunities in alaska alaska's bear population is, is just exploding uh, between grizzly brown and, and, and black bear populations across the state uh, very few places that i know of where uh, the bear population is decreasing to where the fishing game's game is concerned about it they're they're more than anything right now trying to get more people to go shoot more bears so uh, like i said just varies across the spectrum and the time of the year and where you're hunting but you know i kind of do it all I, i've done every single method possible that you're legally allowed to hunt bears uh with here in alaska
0: so, what's it like being up close and personal with them down on the river, sharing sharing the salmon with them?
1: Uh, I've had bad encounters, and I've had encounters where most of the time, what people don't realize in general is a bear has nothing, it doesn't want anything to do with people. So, a lot of times, on the salmon stream, you're sub-100 yards. you got to make a decision, you got to make a decision quick when a bear hops out in the gravel bar with you. Most of the time, it, you're hoping that the wind is either they're dead or it's favorable of where the bear comes out again you have no clue where this bear's going to pop out they just appear out of like magic so if your wind's not good then that bear soon it might not even hit the gravel bar grab- that bear might have ran off before you even knew it was coming hits the gravel bar slight breeze hits you hits the bear bear has a sense of smell nine times better than a bloodhound that bear takes off running gone i've had bears see me usually young bears i've had them false charge I had a uh, three, maybe four-year-old Sal one time, pretty fresh kickoff from mom, I'm going to guess probably probably four years old, walking the salmon stream, and she just circled me and my client forever, popping her teeth and just growling and several times running at me. Uh, one time, I almost drop kicked her in the head. Uh, she probably got, I don't know, five, six feet, wow. and she was we were up on this high bank, and she was, kept trying... She she had to climb a little bit to get up to us. And there were several times where she tried climbing the bank to get up to our, our elevation piece. And one time I almost connected, kicking her in the face. At another time, a little story here, I was hunting on a salmon stream with a client. We had a long, long day, like I said, hunting and hunting and hunting, and you're tired. Client ends up falling asleep underneath this big spruce tree. We we're kind of camping. And I told the client that typically I sleep during the day and hunt all night. You know, because you can see all night long at this time of the year. Okay. Uh, So the hunter's like, man, I'm tired. I'm just like zoning out here. I was like, all right, you take a nap. I'll tap you on the leg if I see a bear coming. He's like, okay. And I can still see everything clear as day, but I'm nodding. Like, I'm tired myself. I didn't sleep good that, that previous morning. So my head's bobbing up and down. I'm nodding off. And though if it was just situationally ironic that I happened to lift my head up when I did, or I heard a stick pop, and that woke me up. I don't know, but one of the times my head like nods down, and you know how when you like you're nodding off, you like your head falls down, you catch yourself, and it wakes you up. Yeah. I like think that happened. I nodded down. I woke up, and as soon as I look up, well less than ten feet in pro- approaching, coming up this bear trail is a grizzly. It has no idea that I'm there because we're like kind of tucked underneath this like umbrella of this big spruce tree over top of the creek. This bear walking right up to me has no idea I'm there. I literally, out of reflex, I grabbed my 375 and I like lunge at the bear out of reflex, like <laughs> chambered around, threw it on fire, and like lunged the barrel forward. How I didn't poke this bear by this point, I have no clue. This bear had maybe another second to second and a half step. Uh, and then it would have put it it was my legs were kind of outstretched in front of me Mm -hmm. it would have put its paw directly on my leg that's what it would have that's what would have woke me up was a bear stepping on my leg
0: oh i couldn't imagine
1: and the bear yeah the bear drops low and its ears go back and it goes and then bounces back and runs down the creek like we just scared the crap out of each other (laughs) and i'm like shaking like violently shaking yeah and i like turn to the hunter thinking the hunter's like freaking out the hunter's literally snoring and he never even knew it <laughs> never happened.
0: never even knew. Wow.
1: Yeah. So, Did you I tell never him told when he woke up. No. Because, <laughs> because, <laughs> nope, I never told him cuz he'd be too afraid to go back out after that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I couldn't imagine being that close. Oh, I couldn't imagine. I, not at all. I mean to, to have the next step be be on you with, with I I couldn't imagine. Not like no. No.
1: Yeah. That was the closest. That was the closest I've been on a non-threatening encounter, for sure. I mean, that that bear just had no idea we were there, and it was just walking down his trail mine in its own business.
0: So you say that's the closest you've been on a non-threatening, so they, they've been closer on a threatening encounter?
1: I I had one black bear that we killed that bear finally died at 7 feet. I mean, and that was actually marked off 7 feet. We actually measured it out, and that's my final three thirty-eight bullet broke its neck at, at 7 feet wow. on the charge. Wow. So that ha- black bear was unprovoked. We were actually hunting that black bear. We saw that a moose hunter and he had a black bear tag and we're not seeing much in moose activity and I see this black bear. I tell the guy, "Hey, man, we got a black bear coming down. He's eating blueberries. Looks like a decent bear. Do you think we should go, you know, go do a stalk on him since you had that black bear tag?" He knows like, "Oh, Oscar, it. it's middle of the day, hot, nothing really going on. Let's go try to get this black bear." So we do. mill in a big circle eating berries. And we come to this kind of like this ridge line and we the goal was to get up on the ridge get prone and we'd be like 200 yards probably at the most from this black bear which is good bear killing range hunter has a three uh 3378 weatherby mag i have a 338 wind mag and we get to this big alder thicket right before the hill where we have to climb up the hill and make the shot hunter like whispers me like hey tyler i turn around look i like hey what's up he's like do you mind if I take a breath for a few minutes to catch my breath, uh, take a break before, so I can catch my breath before we climb this big hill for the shot? I was like, yeah, sure. So we're just kind of like whispering back and forth. I'm going over the game plan of, okay, we're going to get on top of this hill. This is what's probably going to happen. This is what we need to do, blah, blah, blah. As I'm explaining this, whispering to him, I start hearing, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell is that? And I like look to my right, like I, start seeing a little movement on my right hand peripheral vision and i see the tops of some bushes shaking and no sooner as i turn my body at the bushes all i hear is Whoa. and this thing comes running oh but i don't see the bear at all all i see is the bush i hear the roar and the bushes are just violently shaking towards us it's running oh, man. at us the hunter yells i see the bear I was like, well, shoot the damn thing. <laughs> so he throws up his 33-78. Uh, Boom. Nails this thing. I hear it snarl. The bear just starts snarling like crazy. Chambers another round. Boom. Hits it again. Oh. This spins the bear into this game trail, and I see the bear now. I, I'm So I swing on this bear like you're swinging a shotgun shooting like a dove or something. Swing on it. I shoot. My round hits it somewhere in the stomach. Literally blows out and trails. The bear sees me and starts running right at me, ears back, low to the ground, sprinting right at me. Hunter has his next round. He shoots, puts a round into its shoulder. It hobbles it up really, really good. Now it's like broken down pretty good with that shoulder shot. It's probably at this point 15 feet and coming closer. I see as I'm getting on the bear because it's behind a little bit of brush again. And it breaks out of the brush. And as it's breaking out of the brush, uh, the hunter drops his rifle because he's out of the ammo. And he's trying to get a four sixty Smith & Wesson revolver out of a holster. And it's stuck. And I just see him like trying to rip it out. The bear breaks the brush, coming running at me. Like I said, it's, it's, uh, one leg's like broken. And it's like hobbling on its leg. I can see its guts hanging out, dragging behind it. I finally have enough time to get crosshairs on the bear. I put the crosshairs on the bear's head and start squeezing the round and it must have lifted its head up slightly gun goes off and bear just drops straight to the ground last shot i, I zipped it right through the neck and ended up breaking its neck I, mean, I could pretty much turn the bear's head all the way around i broke its neck and we it like we were just looking at each other and i had one bullet left in my 338 win mag and me and the hunter are like practically pissing our pants just shaking like can't breathe nothing the bear's laying there dead after we finally after 20 minutes of gaining our composure just like reloaded and just sitting there just like holy crap but we pasted off that bear died pretty much exactly seven feet from where i was standing on my last shot
0: wow so what's going through your head i mean that's a straight like fight or flight instinct for most people and you got that bear you know parting to see a tree shaking the trees like how quickly in that moment does your adrenaline shoot and then you just become honed in focused because a lot of people will never experience that.
1: I can't speak for everybody because I feel everybody's different in a scenario like this. But what you said a few seconds ago about fight or flight—that is the best way to describe it. When I was in that situation, uh, it's going to sound crazy, but I don't. When I have been in that situation a solid eight times that I've been in doing this up here in Alaska, uh, in this in the capacity of being a guide, and. All the way to those times, I can assure you, I didn't really feel or think much of anything. You just perform. After the fact, you're literally just violently shaking. I mean, you're nauseated. I mean, I've almost thrown up like two or three times when when I've had that happen. Because you're just so overwhelmed. Like, literally like, holy shit, what just happened? Like, I almost literally had this bear on top of me. Mm -hmm. And... You, you, for me, I process it after the fact. I I don't know what I can equate that to. It's probably just my body's natural way of just handling a stressful life and death scenario like that. I don't know. A lot of it has to do with just the experiences I've had being around bears, getting used to them, their habits, how their body language is, and just the training and getting comfortable around them to where when I have a bad incident, that training and that muscle memory so to speak just kind of kicks in and I just perform. That client that I had, I mean the I can tell you this right now. If I did not have that client with me. And this is the only two times ever have I been able to say that the client has literally saved the day in this situation he 100% probably saved my life or saved me at the very least having a very violent mauling. He put three rounds of 3378 Weatherby Magnum, bonded bullets. We were shooting with nothing but bonded bullets. Mm-hmm. That much energy and that much lead zipping through that bear doing that much damage, and I got two shots in. Can you imagine what could have potentially happened if he didn't put those three extra bullets in that bear? By the time the bear broke the brush, if he didn't spin that bear twice and put it in my line of sight, that bear would have been able to hug the brush, and I would have been shooting blindly and the direction of moving brush is option A, or option B, waiting for the bear to break out the brush like 12, 15 feet ahead of me, and I still haven't even got one single bullet in that bear, that bear probably would have gone on top of me because I would have only had one shot because that bear would been at full charge. I may be able to put one bullet in it. If I didn't crack that bear directly in the head or ended up hitting that bear in the spine, dropping out its back legs, that bear 100% would have been on top of me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that that was one of the things I was going to ask about was you're really putting the trust of your life in that situation in your hunter in that sense yeah. and, and having confidence in them. But like, that's something you can't pick and choose. This is not like when the client comes on and be like, Nope, you got to go back home. I'm not going to have confidence in of you with a bear charge. It's just something that's going to, somebody's going to come over naturally hopefully in, hopefully in that situation that they, they do just hone in and just focus at the situation at hand and handle the situation that, who knows what's going to happen? I'd like to say that if I was ever in that situation, I that, did, that I'd be able to, to to slow down and focus and do and perform. But you never know.
1: The other time uh, I had a bear incident similar to that was with a state trooper, and from I think he was a Michigan state trooper, and he had really good weapons handling and was really safe with guns and everything, and knew how to handle his rifle. That was the other situation that the client was in with me when the bear charged. But most of these guys, they can't really even shoot very good to begin with. And I don't want to have them go in with me and, you know, possibly make the situation even worse while we're in there. Because they're going to be behind me with a loaded rifle, probably on fire, you know, fire with a round chambered. You know, I could I run the risk of getting shot from behind while the bear charges from the front.
0: Are you? When you're going for like a bear recovery, are there a lot of times where like you know the bear's down, or like are you always until you physically see that the bear's down, are you constantly on edge, like on ready, waiting for a charge?
1: Yeah. So my uh, philosophy on bear retrieval is, if I don't see the bear dead, the bear is always alive. So there's a whole. I, this is one of those scenarios where I wish I had a whiteboard with me to kind of show <laughs> you like a mock like scenario so this is one of the things that jim bailey trained scott and scott trained to me so most scenarios we don't go in with a uh with a client like i said client stays outside of the brush pile usually on an elevation piece and they're on like like, kind of like guard duty like an overwatch scenario where they're watching the brush they're they i I predetermine where i'm going to go how i'm going to enter how i'm going to proceed through the brush they have shooting windows, just like you would if you're pheasant hunting or something, where they can shoot if the bear runs out and where they can't shoot. Where they can't shoot is what I call no man's land. That's your big, thick, nasty brush where no human being should be in the beginning for the first place. That's where the bears always go when they're wounded. If there's a brush pile nearby where you shoot the bear, he's, first thing, he turns and burns. head right for the nasty stuff. They feel safe in that. That's where they bed naturally. Mm-hmm. So, I'll have the hunter on an elevation piece where, preferably, he can keep an eye on where I'm at. He might not even be able to see me. He might just be able to see brush moving as I go through. But he has windows off the sides of the brush. So sometimes when I'm moving through the brush, I spook the bear up, and it runs out and squirts out one of the sides. In a scenario like that, the hunter is on standby. He's usually prone with the rifle. He, uh, Once that bear runs out, I usually—most of the time, I can hear it running or I see it run through the brush— soon as he sees his bear, he can put rounds on target. The best case scenario, most of the time, if even if I have him on overwatch or not, the client, is me going in by myself. Because once I'm in there by myself, I first thing I do is I take off all my big bulky clothing, so that way I can maneuver my rifle around easy. I can deploy my sidearm fast. I usually carry a Glock 20 10mm with high-pressure bear loads, bonded bullets. The bulky clothing allows me to maneuver better. I always keep my pack frame on, usually, em- for the most part, empty, but on. The reason why is, as the bear gets onto me, I can roll up in a ball, wrap my hands around the back of my neck, protect my jugular my clotted artery, roll up in the fetal position with that pack frame on my back. So as that bear maneuvers you around and bites at you and slashes at you, that pack frame may actually end up saving you, especially from getting you know uh, your stomach ripped open, something like that uh scott and me we were one of the things about scott that i miss uh hunting with him on some of these on some of these uh bear retrievals is the tactics that me and him would uh deployed when we would go in together scott was pretty much one of the very few people ever that i would go in uh on a bear retrieval scott would usually lead the way and i'd be right on him and on a tactic like that. When you're going through a bear trail, they're usually about no uh, wider than a doorway, and you're going down the bear trail, and you get to an obstacle or something like that. You have to like, step over a log or something. The guy behind you takes point, and you know he covers you while you maneuver over the object, because you have to take your rifle out of your hand and really maneuver yourself through brush and everything. If you have a guy that's that trained where you can do that with, that is your best case scenario, especially... When you have a you know a pretty bad bear charge that happens now you have two guns putting bullets downrange into the bear again but most of the time I'm by myself and that bear can come from 360 degrees around me typically I always find that the bears when they run into the brush they turn around and face the way they came so typically when you stumble onto the bear the bear is going to be looking at you when you find it. Bears don't bleed very good, especially in the fall. Thick fur in the fall, a lot of fat. You know, they're fattened up for the winter hibernation. So that that blood has to soak all the way through get through that fat layer, that hole in the fat, which a lot of times the fat sops up the wound, has to get through all that fur just start bleeding onto the ground, sometimes where this bear even is. And then usually, but when you do stumble them, if you come on them head on, you know, like I said, they're facing you. They get up, they charge. You usually have one maybe two bullets you can put into that bear and the bears on you. And I can send you a bunch of pictures of bears we've shot in the head over the years. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty gnarly, uh, (sighs) stuff, but yeah, typically speaking, that's, that's how it goes. And sometimes we don't retrieve them at all. Uh, A lot of times if a bear, I always say if a bear gets out of sight and typically past three to 400 yards where you shot the bear, the chance of recovery probably drops down to about 20 to 25% at that point. Yeah. So if you see a bear at a distance of like six, 700 yards and it's still moving at a pretty good clip, odds are you're probably not going to retrieve that bear at all. If he still out and it, you know, people will say like all oh, the bears, you know, if you shoot it in the shoulder, it won't, it won't climb uphill and this and that. Well, I've seen it climb uphill with just, I've seen compound fractures of their shoulder blade where we had found pieces of the shoulder blade on the ground. And the, I'm watching the bear in my rifle scope shooting at it. It runs up a mountain with the bone sticking out of its leg on its shoulder. Oh. And it just ran up the top of a mountain.
0: Wow. Crazy. Man, I, I knew bear bear hunting in Alaska was pretty extreme, but like you just that just takes it to a whole new level about what you do. And talking about nerves is steel. That's something that that you, you have to have.
1: Yeah. Well, to me, like I said, I I, I ain't even going to lie to you and say, Oh, it's not scary. I'm so used to it. You know, I'm some badass. Like that's, that'd be, <laughs> I'd be just lying to you. The, the thing is, is it's just, you have to have the courage to go in and do it. Like, I, do you experience the reverberation in your chest of what a low guttural bear growl feels like? It's the craziest. You, you when a bear growls at you, especially like a warning growl, you feel the growl more than you hear the growl and that doesn't make sense to unless you've experienced that like i can tell 50 60 yards away i've i've seen the bear physically watch seeing looking at the bear looking at me and it, and i can't there's a scientific term for it that i can't remember off the top of my head right now but they can do this reverberation from uh their vocal cords and you you feel it in your diaphragm of your chest. I mean, it's it's the creepiest feeling in the world. Oh man,
0: I kind of like want to feel it just out of curiosity, but at the same point, I'm like I don't know if I want to
1: feel it. <laughs> That's how we know a bear came into camp most of the time. I had an incident on Kodiak two years ago where we had a, a dead Sitka blacktail deer hung up in a tree a little ways from camp, and the bear was coming through our camp heading towards the deer. Stumbled into camp and obviously knew we were there because it could smell us and everything. So the bear kind of just stopped in the tree line and I knew it was in camp because we could feel it. We were in our sleeping bags. We could feel our chests vibrating. Me and the other two guys all felt it. And we, I told him, oh, bear in camp, and sure enough, we come out, and the bear started chomping its teeth and growling at us in the dark, and we're shining lights trying to find it. The bear was thick enough in the trees, we couldn't even get a, a light refraction off the off the eyes. So it knew we were there, and it was far enough back in, we couldn't see it up and jaw at us. But like I said, we felt it coming because it started reverberating during that guttural growl, and we could feel it before it entered camp.
0: Wow. Wow. Now do all bears do that? Grizzlies, Browns, Flax? I've,
1: ex- I've experienced it. I don't think I've ever... I'd be lying to you if i said I've felt it for certain with a black bear. I've felt it with Kodiak bears, Alaskan brown bears, and grizzlies. I've felt it 100% with those. I don't think I've ever uh, felt it with a black bear, though, that I come to think of it. I've, I've had them all chomp. They all do the teeth chomping and stuff like that and the woofing, but mm-hmm. I've never, ever experienced but my if my memory serves me correct, I've never felt the reverberation from a blackie.
0: Ah, interesting. Wow. Well, a few more questions here. Um, kind of going back to the guide thing in terms of that we kind of covered a lot about how you're getting through the process and, you know, pretty much got to embrace the suck. But what would some advice would you give somebody who, if they're looking to become a guide, what would you tell them, whether it be in Alaska or somewhere else?
1: Uh, pretty much in general, Graham, a little biased to Alaska. This is all I know up here, but in general, a good rule of thumb is, as we talked about pretty extensively earlier, is just having a never give up mentality when you come up and whenever you're starting your, your apprenticeship to learn, be willing to humble yourself. You know, when somebody's teaching you something, even if you have a good idea of how to do it, just let them teach you, you know, you're going to be surprised by how much you don't know. And how much you're going to learn doing it by somebody else's method. Uh, me, I didn't know anything. And it was very hard at first to ha- be humble enough to take the criticisms. Because you're going to screw up a lot. I mean, you're, and it's a high-stress job. And everybody around you is going to be stressed. And everybody around you is going to be having way more experience than you. And you're going to be, at times, given tasks That you're not necessarily going to be that good at and you're going to screw up and you're going to receive harsh criticism about it. And so when you receive that harsh criticism, learn from the mistakes you're making and just constantly be soaking up the information and the material that guys are giving you. When somebody shows you how to do something, you know, the correct way, if you screw up, you know, you just want to take that in stride and you know just roll with the punches learn how to do it and then do it right the next time i mean that's the most important thing because like i said you're you're far from an expert and when you go into these camps and a lot of these old time master guides who have been doing something for 30 40 50 years sometimes they have a they're pretty set in their ways so even if you know a way better of doing it you know sometimes you might not want to do it that way you just want to roll with the punches and let them do it their way and you know you learn their way and do it their way but that's the best piece of advice I can give is I've had packers in camps not only just with my company, but other companies where they come up and they just act like they know everything. And, and I've had uh, clients getting mad at apprentices because, you know, the apprentice tries to be a mock guide. When you're an apprentice, you're there to observe, observe the situation and learn as you go. You're not there to guide. And it's not legal for you to conduct a hunt. So you're not allowed to tell hunters what to do. You don't you're not licensed. Mm-hmm. So I've had plenty of packers over the years try to take charge and, you know, pretend that, you know, they're barking the orders and everything. Like that that not only is going to irritate the uh the guide that you're with and the outfitter, but it's also going to start getting really irritating to the clients too. So that's another thing. Like I said, you're you're the fly on the wall more than anything. You're there to watch and learn.
0: Yeah breathe the sponge 100% learn, yep. be the sponge. Be willing to learn, be willing to fail because that's, you're going to, and that's how you're going to learn, learn, learn no from doubt. the stories of everybody else, of, of all their failures that they're passing down. Like I'm pretty sure I, any guy's going to have those stories of failures of like, Hey, I learned this when this happened. I learned this when that, when that happened. And it's just like you were talking about earlier is that if you can take, learn from other people's failures to prevent you from doing that, you're just going to shorten that curve. And help you so much further along the way.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I had... We had a guide a few years ago. Did his apprenticeship, became a guide. And just him listening to me and Scott's bear stories and how to do retrievals appropriately. On his second... I think it was his second bear hunt ever. His second grizzly hunt ever by himself. He had a charge. And just because he listened to us and knew the proper protocol... He was able to safely dispatch that bear, and he shot his bear in the head on, on a charge. But him not knowing we had given him beforehand, he might have gotten mauled that day very easily. That bear was very lively. They only got one bullet in that bear before it ran, and the hunter shot it in the guts. Mm. And that ran into the brush and was just laying there with a stomach ache and waiting for them. And, and it charged and was pretty pretty damn alive. And my uh, my buddy got one bullet out of his gun and he shot the thing right in the head and just pretty much cratered its head and dropped it instantly. Wow. And he he did the proper protocol and he, because he did that and he had the hunter in a safe location providing overwatch to hunter. I, if I remember the story right, actually seen the bushes moving first and yelled to my buddy to get ready. And as soon as he yelled, that bear just came charging right after my buddy and he was already prepared and good to go and he, uh, got one up the bear on that situation. So again, you know, everything that you learn in a very quick amount of time is going to, you know, pretty much pay off very, very quickly because you're going to find yourself in scenarios that, you know, that training, you know, help you, you know, you get through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, cu- I couldn't, uh, I haven't experienced it. I keep saying this man, like, you make me like want to be afraid to go to Alaska at the same time, but you also make me curious to like go and experience some of the stuff. <laughs> it's just it's yeah. Like...
1: Well, oh, I was gonna say you have to have a level of respect for this place at all times. Mm-hmm. I always tell people Alaska is beautifully deadly. You know, you can't get caught up in like the beauty and the natural environment of it all. You you got to realize like yes, this is an amazing place. In my opinion, this is the greatest place on earth that you that has ever existed. This is the best of the best, but you also got to accept the fact that this place will kill you and life will go on. And that's it. Like that's the, that's the most blatant way I can put it. Like there's no, Alaska does not care about your feelings and your life and your livelihood. The level of indifference you see every single day while you're up here is just, it's, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good spot to end it here. So where's uh how can people find you internet facebook instagram website all that stuff
1: yeah so social media in general hasn't been very favorable for me uh mainly because i do bear hunts and instagram <laughs> and everything uh cancels me quite regularly so i kind of gave up on that uphill battle but uh if you want to reach out to me and go on the website uh com. Uh, i'm on guide fitters website as well you can just type in my name tyler kuhn or type in a team outfitting uh guide fitter kind of has a social media platform going on there that's really it's pretty much focuses on hunting so you can reach me out on there as well and check out all the stuff uh but yeah website or just checking out guide fitter you know if you want to get a hold of me
0: no cool man well uh i know you're you're heading out here for another trip and i appreciate you coming on and uh good luck out there and stay safe
1: Yep, thanks, man. Five and a half days, and it's back to to the grind again.